today. So grateful for our worship teams, uh, today's team, and the number of teams that we have that serve and uh, lead us. Uh, they use their gifts to um, serve Christ and to lead us well, and we appreciate their ministry and Ryan and his leadership of those teams. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. Follow along as I do, please. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not, as it is with the good, so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of the people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward... They joined the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no further reward. And even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go. Eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time And chance happened to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Uh, We've been walking through this book in the Hebrew Scriptures for several months, and nearly every week that we open it, uh, I have been trying to orient you to this strange and jarring and mysterious book, these unsettling meditations. Uh, This is so different from the rest of what we read in the Bible. You can be a very good reader of Scripture and be very familiar with the rest of the Bible, and still Ecclesiastes is, it's hard going sometimes. Uh, So here's another image for you to consider as I try to orient you to the book. Maybe it will help. I want you to think for a minute with me about the last time that you went to see a movie in theater. 
Uh, for a while, uh, for some of you, it might have been a while. Some of you avoid the theater out of conviction, or movies just don't interest you. But I still think you'll understand. Follow me here for, for just a minute. When it's time for the movie to start, you buy your ticket or you buy it online, and, and then you go in and you uh, uh, get some popcorn maybe, and you walk by the ticket collector and you go into the theater and you sit down and you watch the movie, and then when it's over, you get up and you go outside. If it's a bright day uh, in the afternoon, you, you blink a little bit in the sun because you've been in that dim light for so long. Uh, when we lived in Dallas, uh, Texas for a few years, I observed everybody, not everybody, a lot of people on hot, hot summer Saturday afternoons goes to the movie theater. The reason they go to the movie theater is because it's too hot to do anything outside, so you can go to the theater and watch a movie, and, and it, uh, sometimes when you go outside into that bright Texas sun, it actually feels good because they keep the theaters about 62 degrees. Now imagine for a minute what it would be like if your whole life was confined to a movie theater. If you were born and grew and are educated and marry and work and raise a family and age and die all within that movie theater, all within the confines of that little multiplex, your whole world is there. It's, it's all you know. But into this world in which you live, every now and then comes a message from what people say is the outside, the outside world. There are messengers from the outside world, they stand up and they say, hear this word, this message that comes from the outside world. The creator of all has given me this message and I am here to tell you about the outside world. Now some people will stop and listen to those messengers. Other people are just trying to get to the next showing and will walk right by them. But there will be lots of questions. Outside world? What do you mean outside world? Does the outside world really exist? Yes, it does. And, and it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's vast. There's this thing in the sky in the outside world called the, the sun, and it gives light to everything. Oh, <laughs> we've got lights in here. Can't you see them? I mean, they're up, up in the ceiling. Can't you see the light? No, 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 no. The sun is, is big, and it's bright, and it gives light to everything. It's amazing. I'm not sure I want things that bright. I kind of look better in dim light. I'm not sure I'm going to like the sun. The sun is more than just light, though. It's, it's warm and things grow under the sun. Trust me, there is more for you to walk on with your feet than carpet and tile. There's grass and the sun. It, it helps plants to grow and trees and flowers. Trust me, it's beautiful. And wind. Wind. You go outside and there's wind in the outside world. Wind. We have wind. Can't you feel the breeze coming from the vents? Keeps us cold. Keeps us warm. It's wonderful. No, 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 no. I mean wind. Like real wind. Like you could put a kite in the air and fly it. Wind. And then there's the ocean. Oh, the ocean. I know about the ocean. I've seen the ocean on the screen. You know what's wrong with the ocean? It's full of sharks. And if you're going to go in the ocean, you need a bigger boat because of all the sharks. And if it's not the sharks, then there's icebergs in the ocean. And the ocean is no. No, but, but the ocean, it, it has waves and you can swim in it and you can smell it. And it's wonderful to sit by in the summer. And in the outside world, there's food. Food? We have food. We have popcorn. We have raisinets. We have nachos. We have soda. 
No, 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 no. I mean food, like real food. Oranges and bananas and steak and corn on the cob. Corn on the cob. That sounds like popcorn. Is it like popcorn? Well, they're both reasons, just excuses to eat butter and salt, but it's different. It's different. Some people will deny it, right? There, there can't be an outside world like that. Have you ever been to the outside world? Have, have you seen it? This is the world. This is all that there is. There's nothing else. I don't believe in the outside world, and I don't believe in any creator who told you about it. Now think with me about that image for just a minute and how it would connect to Ecclesiastes. Some of you are already there. Uh, there's a man, he calls himself the teacher. And he believes in the outside world and he worships the creator of all. And he is keenly aware of the problems that we face as we live inside this world. Inside this world, the world is full of troubles and problems and heartaches and mysteries that we can't really solve. I heard about a church this week that after their service hosts um, Q&R sessions. They don't call them Q&A sessions. They're Q&R sessions because they promise that whatever question you answer, they will have a response, but not necessarily an answer. They'll respond to all your questions. They won't be able to answer all of them. They're Q&R sessions. The teacher knows that. He, he doesn't speak. The teacher doesn't speak, of course, about a movie theater and an outside world, but the teacher does talk about life under the sun, under the sun, bounded as it is, by the realities that we face. And here in the book of Ecclesiastes is the record of his wrestling with the realities of life under the sun. Sometimes he writes just in despair. He says he's just so discouraged. It's so dark in here. It's, it's so bland. It's so hard. Life is so mysterious and then sometimes the teacher gets this look in his eyes as if he's thinking about somewhere else, about a land where there is sun and the ocean and oranges and trees and wind. Now you might remember what the teacher has been wrestling with specifically. We've been talking about in these last couple of chapters. He is trying to figure out why bad things happen to good people. Or to put it another way, put it in a Bible language, why do righteous people sometimes suffer, but wicked people sometimes prosper? Uh, th that doesn't seem to be right or fair or, or just. And, and, and since it happens, you start to wonder, if, if righteous people don't necessarily prosper and sometimes wicked people do, what's the point of being wise or righteous anyway? Why bother trying if it's not going to benefit me the way I want it to? Now, we all know, we can step back, and we all know what the Bible says about us human beings. Every single one of us, we are not good people. The Bible says that we are all sinners. By nature and choice, we have fallen short of God's standards. If God himself is the standard, compared to him, if, if we're down here as far as moral goodness, where's God? <laughs> right? On the moon. Here we are, here's our standard of moral goodness. God is that much better than we are. We, we, don't, we fall short, far short of his standards. We are guilty of cosmic treason against God. Um, 
that, that's true. So in, in one sense, it's kind of silly. It's silly a little bit to talk about why bad things happen to good people because in this sense, there are no good people. But, but there are differences between us. Um, there are Mother Teresa type people in the world and there are Charles Manson type people in the world. There's a, there's a difference between human beings. There are uh, both the wonderful Mr. Rogers and the execrable Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Remember hearing about him, al-Baghdadi, a couple weeks ago? Al-Baghdadi is the leader of ISIS, and a couple weeks ago, uh, in response to a raid by the uh, U.S. military, al-Baghdadi blew himself up in a cave before he was going to be captured. It's interesting, the news coverage about al-Baghdadi, the number of newscasters who are... Christians, atheists, and agnostics all talking about al-Baghdadi as an evil man. The world has lost an evil man. We didn't lose him. We were glad to give him up. There goes an evil man. There are in this world Mr. Rogers type people and there are al-Baghdadi type people. Why is it that sometimes the Mr. Rogers type people suffer and the al-Baghdadi type people prosper? What's the point of being a Mr. Rogers person as opposed to an al-Baghdadi person if, if, there's, if, if, if there's no difference in, the, in what happens to them? And when we come to chapter 9, we, we, we encounter the greatest leveler of all people, namely death. The teacher's going to wrestle with this. I want you to listen in, and I want to summarize what he's going to say about this under three headings, three commands. This is where we're going today. Uh, First, we're going to talk about this command, expect to die. You should expect to die, and it should change the way you live. Second, uh, expect to die is in the first six verses, and then, then we're going to go to the end of the passage in verses 11 and 12, and we're going to find this command, you should anticipate ups and downs, anticipate ups and downs in this life, and then we're going to settle in the middle where he tries to give us some counsel. It's counsel we've seen before. This is the fifth or sixth time we've seen counsel like this, except in this passage he's more fervent than usual. He's going to tell us in verses 7 through 10 to enjoy life, to enjoy life. Now, let's begin walking through the text. I I have some basic observations under this heading, expect to die. I want to move through the passage kind of line by line, at least as we start, which is going to make having your Bibles open important and make uh, taking notes more difficult. But that's all right. Verse 1 of chapter 9, look how it starts. So I reflected on all this. And concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. Boy, this is good news, even as we start. He's wrestling with these issues that, that, uh, that sometimes righteous people suffer and sometimes wicked people prosper. But you know what? The righteous people are in God's hands. That's affirming. It's helpful. Teachers, is there any difference between the wicked and the, and, and the righteous, between the wise and the foolish? Yes, The righteous are in God's hands. This speaks to God's sovereign care, His mercy, His kindness. When Kathy was growing up, her pastor was a man by the name of James Andrews. And James Andrews uh, pastored a large church. He was a great preacher. Pastored a large church, and he was really good at connecting with the people in his congregation. And he would often say to them at the end of the services, something like this, May God be with you until we meet again, and may he hold you in the palm of his loving hands. It's a wonderful blessing. It 
it, it, it speaks of God's great care. Maybe he's paraphrasing uh, what Jesus said in John 10. Look what Jesus said. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You're safe. You're safe in the Father's hand. It's a wonderful image. Then the teacher, he kind of contradicts himself a little bit. Or he, he talks about this mystery So you're in God's hands, but the next line says, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. That's not what you would expect. You would expect him to say, you're in God's hands and you're going to experience nothing but love and kindness and joy and peace. I would like the text to say that. Not what the text says. Uh, it's comforting to be in God's hands, but, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits him, which is not very comforting. There are questions about whether the love or hate here is divine love or human, uh, divine love and hate or human love and hate. So is it, is it you're going to be experience uh, love and hate from human beings or love and hate from God himself? I think the passage is talking about God himself in this sense. Sometimes in the course of life, you'll experience blessings that you think are the sure sign of God's love. You ever said this? This is silly. This is a, a minor example, but you be, it, it's, it's Christmas shopping season, right? And you pull into the mall and you're like, look at that parking sign. God loves me today, <laughs> right? And then something terrible will happen, Some, something awful. And, and you'll say to yourself, Boy, it feels like God hates me. I feel like I'm experiencing the hatred of God. Does God love you or does God hate you? It's hard to tell by your circumstances. Then he gets to this supreme example of that in verse 2. He starts, all share a common destiny. We're going to talk about that destiny in a minute. But notice how first he talks about the all. Who does he mean by all? The righteous, the wicked, the good, the bad, the clean, the unclean, those who offer sacrifices, those who don't, the good, the sinful, those who take oaths, so those who are afraid to take them, they all experience the common destiny, regardless of how good or how bad you are. And the destiny is in verse 3. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. All right, tell us what it is. And then he describes human beings. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there's madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join. Here it is, finally, the destiny, the dead. Death. The destiny we all share, death. Notice what he says about death in verse 3. He says, it is evil. This is the evil. Death is evil. Death is not primarily a physical phenomenon. Certainly it is a physical phenomenon. If you go to medical school, uh, there will be discussions. Ethicists talk about this. What is death? When does death actually happen? Your heart stops beating. Your lungs stop breathing. Your brain starts sending out, uh, stops sending out electrical waves. Death surely is a physical reality, but it is a moral reality, the teacher says. It's evil. That word evil is used in the Old Testament to describe people who are impetuous and irrational. Death is evil. 
It's impetuous. It's irrational. It takes people at the wrong time. It's, it's confusing. It's, we hate it. it. It's evil. And it happens to us all. It's interesting how he describes human beings. So he described death as evil. He describes human beings as evil too. Some scholars think that the teacher is thinking about, he he often does this, he's thinking about the early chapters of Genesis. Um, Look with me about what God says about human beings in Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was The human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Evil people experience an evil end, death. Death is the rightful consequence, right and just consequence for all of us. The Mr. Rogers types and the al-Baghdadi types. And the al-Baghdadi types who think they're the Mr. Rogers types. You should expect to die, and it will not likely be at a time or in a manner of your choosing. Look what he says about death in verses 4 through 6. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Because even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now, to really appreciate verse 4, you have to remember that in the Old Testament, in this culture, dogs were scavengers. They were dirty animals. You would never have as a dog, as a pet, you would never let a dog in your house. You would certainly, oh, gross, never let a dog sleep in your bed. Ugh. Because dogs are dirty, terrible animals. If you saw a dog, you would throw a rock at it to get it to go away. You don't want dogs. Lions, on the other hand, are heroic and majestic. Lions, lions. But even a live dog is better than a dead lion. Verse 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and their name is even forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy, they've long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Now, we should pause for just a minute and think about how different this is than the New Testament teaching about death and what happens after death for those who are followers of Jesus. In Philippians 1, Paul said that death is gain. Death is gain. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is a blessing. Followers of Jesus are not afraid to die because followers of Jesus know that death ushers us into God's presence. That's a vast contrast with this passage. But remember, the teacher is thinking about life under the sun as we experience it. This week, while I was uh, thinking about this series that we've done in Ecclesiastes, we have about five weeks left, I've been thinking about some of the mistakes that I've made along the way. And in particular, I think that I have left the despair of Ecclesiastes too quickly for the comfort of the New Testament. I'm not sure I've let us sit long enough in this. Doubt and despair don't preach very well. There's part of that. So Let's talk about Jesus, our hope. Let's get to that, right? But do you know why the New Testament spends so much time offering us hope and comfort? It's because we desperately need it because we live in a world that is full of darkness and despair and confusion. 
it's normal to be confused. It's normal to be troubled. Do you remember when the Bible says that, when the Bible talks about uh, Jesus understanding what life is like on our planet, how it describes him? How do we know that Jesus really understands? The Bible tells us that Jesus is a man of suffering and acquainted with grief. Christians are weeping people. We believe in the outside world. We long for the outside world. But here in the now, we're so tired and we're so discouraged. It's normal life under the sun. In a few weeks, we're going to start singing our Christmas songs. There's no better collection of Christian music than Christmas songs. And we're going to sing Joy to the World You know, Joy to the World is actually about his second coming and not his first coming. You know that, right? No more let sin or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his mercies flow far as the curse is found. How far does the curse of Genesis 3 go? It's as wide and as far as you can see. It's as deep as every human heart. It invades everything that we experience on on this planet under the sun. And when we sing joy to the world, you know, we'll sing it well. We sing in our church enthusiastically. We We sing happily. We sing loudly. But we sing that song about joy to the world in faith because there's so much in this world not to be joyful over. Look at what happens to the dead. Their loves, their hates, their jealousies, even their names, they're soon forgotten. Do you remember, can you name your great-grandparents? Those little grandchildren that you have that you love so much, they're going to have children, those little grandchildren are going to have children that won't remember you. Don't spend your time trying to make yourself known, you know. Don't say, now someday you're going to have a little child. And you make sure and tell them about great-grandma Sally because I don't want to be forgotten. Don't do that. It's going to happen. I've told you on multiple occasions about um, uh, my very good friends, our very good family friends in Perry, New York, Vern and Gertie Saunders. Uh, Vern and Gertie Saunders adopted us as grandchildren when we were growing up. Uh, Vern and Gertie both lived into their 90s. They celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary. Um, so I went to both Vern and Gertie's funerals. There's been a couple of times that my dad and I have made in one day the trip up to western New York and back for uh, funerals, and Vern and Gertie's were among those people we went to uh, honor. And at both of their funerals, their sons, Vern and Gertie's sons, uh, stood up and talked about their parents and their love for each other, and they read some of the love notes that they wrote to each other over the years. This is their 40th wedding anniversary cards, or these are, this is a note that they wrote. The notes were sweet, they were sentimental, and frankly, they were a little cheeky. <laughs> and uh, they read these, and you think, this is a romance that, I, that, that all of us could aspire to. But Vern and Gertie are both dead, and their love is over. All that's left of it is, is in the memory banks of their sons, and they're getting increasingly wispy in the memory banks of their grandchildren. Love, hate, jealousy, gone. It's gone. You should notice here, there's no Hebrew mythology about the dead. This is important. There's no warrant here in the Bible for Ouija boards 
or seances. Uh, there is one seance in the Bible. It is so out of place that it clearly doesn't belong. The dead don't know anything. Don't talk to them. They don't know anything. The Greeks, now the Greeks on the other hand, had this whole mythology. They had the, the god Hades who ruled the underworld. And you, uh, you have to cross the river Styx. And no, uh, uh, not here. The dead, the dead, they're gone. Hebrews 9.27, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You die, then judgment. There's no do-overs, there's no reincarnation, there's no coming back to haunt your enemies. One life, then death. For us all, that's it. Now what's surprising here in verse 4 is that he speaks about hope. Anyone who's among the living has hope. Oh good, here's some good news. What's the hope? Well, the hope is that if you're alive, you know that you're going to die, so you can change your life before you die. Okay, I guess. The dead, they can't change anything. The dead don't know anything. The dead are, are soon to be forgotten. But if you are still alive, you can change your life, and thus you have hope. How? What sort of hope? Uh, what sort of change, teacher, do you want us to make? I think the teacher wants you to practice caring less about things that won't last, outlast this world. I think that's what he's after. There are so many things that you love or so many things that you hate or so many things that drive you to envy or jealousy and they're not going to outlive you. They're not going to outlive this world. Should you care about them as much as you do? Some of you this afternoon will turn on the television and you'll watch your favorite athletes throw a ball around and get paid millions of dollars for it. And you'll be euphoric or you'll be in despair. <laughs> Is anybody going to care in 25 years what happens today? Why do you care so much? It's, it really matters. I mean, there's the playoffs, you know. Okay. You're going to die. You are going to die. Remember that you are going to die. Does it really matter what you hate today and what you love today and what you're jealous over today? Because you're going to die. Here's what the teacher says. He says, expect to die and start caring about things less that will die with you. Now let's go to the end of the passage. So we're going to go back to verses 11 and 12. We can't spend as much time here as we did before. But in, in verses 11 and 12, the teacher says, In this world where the righteous and the wicked do not always get what they deserve, you should anticipate ups and downs. You should anticipate ups and downs. So much of life is unpredictable. That's just the way it is. Look at verse 11 and notice how he addresses what should normally happen, but what doesn't always happen. Verse 11, I've seen something else under the sun. The swift should usually win the race, but they don't always. The strong should usually win the battle. They don't. The wise should usually have food. The brilliant should usually have the money. The learned should usually have the favor. But that doesn't always happen because time and chance 
uh, happen to us all. Put time and chance together and you get accidents. Evil times, unexpected events, they happen. This is thought-provoking. You should think about this. The fastest man alive right now is a Jamaican sprinter by the name of Usain Bolt, which is a great name for a sprinter. Uh, what, though, if there is a Brazilian teenager who was faster than Usain Bolt, but he broke his ankle when he was 14 and never made the Olympics? Or what if there is some kid in a South African village that's so far away from any educational opportunities that he never gets, he has within his DNA the potential to be faster than Usain Bolt, but he never gets the exposure to athletics the way Usain Bolt does. And he's actually the fastest kid alive, the fastest man alive, but you don't know his name. Time and chance, they happen to us all. Do you remember in 1991, some of you, this is history, some of you remember this. In 1991, George H.W. Bush was president of the United States, and the Democrats were trying to uh, get together their primaries. And at this point in time, because he had just won the first Gulf War, George Bush was the most popular president that we had ever had. His approval ratings were in the 90s because of his global leadership, because he was an honorable, upright, dignified man. And uh, uh, all of the leading Democratic candidates, the potential leaders in Congress and the potential governors, looked at that and said, oh, no, 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 I'm not running against him. This is not my time. He's going to run for re-election in 92. He's surely going to win because he's so popular. And then what happened? The economy kind of fell apart. And Ross Perot entered the, uh, 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 the election and there was one man, a governor from Arkansas, who stepped forward to be, because everybody else pulled out and, and, and Bill Clinton threw himself into the, the race and, and he won. Time and chance, they happen to us all. Accidents. You missed out on that job because your resume accidentally ended up in the spam folder at HR and it didn't get to the right person. You missed that scholarship because your social security number was one digit off on that form. Did you hear about happened to, what happened to all those texts? Did you hear about this news story? It's a great story. So uh, there is a server in the United States that handles most of the text traffic for um, some of the cell phone providers like T-Mobile and Sprint. And one of those servers at this company went down on Valentine's Day. And it took months to repair, but last week, I think it was on Wednesday, they got the server up and running, and all of those old texts got sent. This is awesome. <laughs> Can you imagine? So you were dating this girl in February. She sent you this wonderful romantic text. Then she broke up with you in April. But yes, last week, you got this text from her. There was one young man who was uh, uh, writing about this. Uh, he, he, he received last week a text from a girl he never dated. She said to him, the text said, Yes, I would love to have dinner with you on Valentine's Day. But he never got the message. Can you imagine all those what-ifs for the rest of his life? He gets married, and his wife yells at him one day, and he thinks, if I'd only got that text, I wouldn't be married to this shrew, right? What if, what if I'd gotten that text? Accidents happen. You can't see the rhyme or the reason to him, so what do you do with all this? with all this despair and all these regrets and all this uncertainty. 
Well, let's return to the middle of the passage where, where the teacher tells us to enjoy life. Enjoy life in verses 7 to 10. This is a paragraph that we have seen before five or six times, depending on how you count in Ecclesiastes. But what's different here is the insistence of the teacher. These are commands. Before it's been observations, before, he's, before he has said, you know, I think this might be best. But here he's, he's insistent. Go, verse 7 says, go. You're going to die. Accidents happen. Go. Work at these things. Pursue these things. Work at what? Uh, Michael Eaton used to teach the Old Testament at a seminary in South Africa, and he summarizes 7 through 9 uh, quite well. He says, verse 7 is about contentment. Verse 7 is about contentment. Eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart because God has already approved what you do. God gave you the food. He wants you to enjoy it. The rest of the Bible teaches this. The food and the drink God provides are His good gifts. What happens when Jesus shows up at a wedding? He brings 120 gallons of wine. Have at it. And just, uh, <laughs> right? He said, uh, 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 enjoy this. Jesus is very interested in wedding feasts being happy occasions. Enjoy them heartily. You're going to die someday. Eat what you're going to eat today with joy. Verse 8 is about comfort. Contentment in verse 7 and then comfort in verse 8. Verse 8 says, Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Now, in, in ancient Israel, white was a festival color. But white was also useful for reflecting the rays of the sun. It, it was cooler in the summer to wear white. Dress for a celebration. Dress for, for comfort. If it's hot outside, put shorts and sandals on and give thanks to God. Be comfortable. Put oil on your head. The desert is dry. The desert is... is um, uh, you get cracked lips and, and cracked skin... Oil was an essential in the ancient world. Use it to keep your skin from cracking. Get some working hands and put it on your hands. God is not honored by your, your scrapey skin. Right? Be comfortable. Now third, verse 9, companionship. Companionship. Michael Eaton starts with C. That's, that's great. He does this. Enjoy life, with, uh, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. Your partner is God's gift to you in the frustrations of life, in the midst of the frustrations of life. He, uh, Michael Eaton cl uh, clarifies here these three qualities of this companionship he's writing about. First, he says that, that this is to be an active quest. That this is an active quest. Enjoy. Here's the command. Enjoy life with your wife. Work at it. Work at enjoying life with your partner. Plan things. Do things that bring joy to your marriage. It's an active quest. Secondly, he says it involves affection. Affection. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. Your beloved Wife, there's affection here. Maybe he's thinking of the one flesh relationship in Genesis 2. And then third, it's lifelong. It's a lifelong commitment. Notice he says, 
all the days of your life. All the days of your life. Your spouse is a gift from God. Life with him or her will be too brief for you to spend it fighting with each other or ignoring each other or aggravating each other. When we started Ecclesiastes a few months ago, uh, Bill Archibald asked me why I decided to preach through this book and answered his question, it's my normal, why do we pick books? Well, we go back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We balance different genres of scripture. So we were talking about that. Later I realized that I had not answered all of his questions in full because I had forgotten about how this passage at the time had prompted my thinking about the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's the important reason, one of the important reasons we're we're studying this book. It's because of how Ecclesiastes 9.9 has helped my thinking about my own marriage. My wife and I are human beings and we live together, which is not a news flash. But because uh, we are human beings and we live together, we annoy each other. I don't know if I I need to say, you all know this is true. I annoy her a lot more than she annoys me. But I still get annoyed. I get annoyed about little things. I get annoyed about medium things. And I'm a perfectionist, and perfectionists are not good at overlooking annoying things. But then I read this passage. Life is full of annoying things. If you're always annoyed, you're never going to be able to enjoy uh, what is good and what is full of gladness. This passage reminds me that because my wife is God's gift to me in this desert wasteland of a world, she is the source of 10,000 blessings to me. In fact, the blessings far outweigh what annoys me. I can hardly name what annoys me in comparison to the joy that she brings me. And I'm a fool when I forget that. Life is hard. Life is hard. It's bleak. It's discouraging. It's never going to be perfect. Enjoy life with your spouse anyway. I read that in Ecclesiastes several months ago. It really helped me. And I figured out, I figured that it might help you too. So here we are, finally made it into chapter 9. The reason we're in Ecclesiastes, let us savor the moment. Uh-huh. Now I realize I'm talking to people who, huh, you have been more than annoyed by your spouse. I have done worse things than just annoy my dear wife. I have, I have hurt her. And some of you here are in uh, serious pain. This is a command in Scripture, so I read this, say, enjoy life with your partner, and you think, oh, terrible. This command is about as palatable to you as the command to eat the carpet on the floor. But can I, can I encourage you by it? Here's a reason to keep at it, to keep working at it, through the midst of the hurt that you have done to one another to have that painful conversation, to learn how to forgive and to pursue forgiveness. This is what God intended for marriage in this imperfect world. He's given you an imperfect partner, but a partner nonetheless who's supposed to help you make it through. Work at it, push through, push through, and, and I think you'll find verse 9 to be wholly true. In fact, I could introduce you to some couples who would say that, who could testify to that. 
tell you about pushing through and finding verse 9 to be wholly true and wholly helpful. Now, verse 10 is about something else that we're supposed to pursue. It doesn't start with the letter C, which is very disappointing, but it'll be okay. Work, work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. God made work. Work serves many purposes. It helps meet your needs. It provides a sense of satisfaction. It occupies your time and attention. In our culture, work is something to escape, right? I can't wait till I retire. I'm counting down the days till I retire. So work is something to escape. But no, 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 God gave us work. And the teacher says, find joy in your work. That's annoying sometimes too. But enjoy life. Now, I really appreciate these commands. They're helpful. They have the potential to change the perspective on the way you live so much of life. But you know, it does ask me, there's something that Jesus said in the New Testament, a question that I have about this. What does this passage, what do these passages, these commands about contentment and comfort and companionship and work, what do they have to do with Jesus' call to self-denial? You ever ask yourself that question? Remember what he said, Luke 9.23. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. The teacher does not seem to have denial, self-denial in mind. He seems to have self-indulgence in mind. So what do we do about this? Ian Proven says, There has always been within the Christian tradition an aesthetic tendency that understands true spirituality as involving the shunning of created things. For example, food, wine, sex, rather than the enjoyment of these things and thankfulness to God who has blessed us with them. So, in other words, who's more spiritual, the person who doesn't enjoy the, the, these um, created things or the one who enjoys them and gives thanks to God? Our default position has been it's the person who shuns them, right? Jesus did tell us to deny yourself. That's our tendency. Ian Proven says, The teacher helps us see that the latter, receiving these things with thankfulness, is true spirituality. Enjoying God's good gifts is true spirituality. But what about Jesus called the self-denial? Well, there are times, there are times when, because of what Jesus has called us to do, you may forego some of these blessings. That's true. You may have less money to spend on your feast less money to spend on your comfort because you gave it away to some worthy cause. Or you may, like the Apostle Paul, forego the blessings of marriage because of some ministry commitment. That is certainly a possibility. That happens. But strikingly, when it does, you may not feel the lack that you fear you might feel. See, Peter once asked Jesus, he said to him, Hey, uh, Jesus, what's there for us, those of, us uh, those of us who have left home and father and mother and wife and children? And, uh, what, what's there for us? We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, Oh, <laughs> you, God owes no one. You, you can't make God in your debt. Uh, he, God is much more generous than you are. You're so proud of your generosity to God. Trust me, God is much more generous than you are. Maybe, maybe when you sacrifice those things, what's happening is that God has expanded your understanding of what it means to enjoy life. There are, there are broad, deep things that you want. So you eat hamburger instead of filet mignon because your filet mignon money is on the mission field. 
Boy, you eat that hamburger with joy, thinking about that filet mignon money that's in Africa or South America or France. God's just expanded your understanding of what it means to enjoy life. But actually, there is more in Jesus' call for self-denial. What Jesus is chiefly calling people to do when he says, pick up your cross and follow me, he is commanding them to deny themselves the things that are keeping you from following him faithfully. Whatever is keeping you from following Jesus faithfully, drop it, let it go, and pick up your cross and follow him. Because sometimes following Jesus feels like death. Sometimes it feels like death. This week I listened to a conversation between a, 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 a group of men and women who are particularly gifted in speaking to skeptics about Jesus. There are people who are very gifted about talking to skeptics, people with serious questions about the faith. And one of those men on the panel was named Sam Albury. Sam Albury frequently speaks about the Bible and homosexuality. Sam Albury himself faces the temptation toward same-sex attraction. And part of what it means for him to follow Jesus faithfully is that he has committed himself to a lifetime of celibacy. He will never get married. Uh, He'll never have a romantic sexual relationship. So a panelist asked him about this. He said, uh, this call to homosexual men and women, following Jesus means setting aside that lifestyle, that sense of identity. It means tearing down your whole relational network. And some people say, well, that's just too much. I'm not going to give up my girlfriend. I'm not going to give up my boyfriend for Jesus. That's too high of a price to pay. That would feel like death. And Sam said, when they raised that objection, I, I, I realized they're beginning to understand what it actually means to follow Jesus. Because Jesus wants more than just your sexuality. The Bible's boundaries around human sexuality are very narrow and very deep. There is a lot that is out of bounds. Whether you are homosexual or heterosexual, there's a lot of out of bounds. God made sex for one man, one woman, in a lifelong covenant of marriage. It's a very narrow gift to be enjoyed very deeply by a husband and wife. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He wants your sexuality. He wants your working life. He wants your wallet. He wants your family relationships. He wants your time. He wants your energy. Jesus demands your very life. Why? So that he can remake it into something beautiful. That's what he means when he says, deny yourself. Here he is, the crucified Savior, calling for crucified followers. You ever thought about that? He was crucified for us to rescue us from our sins, to bear the burden, the price of our sin. He died and rose again. He offers life and forgiveness to all who receive it by faith. That's how you know you are a Christian. You have turned to him for life and forgiveness because of his death on the cross. The crucified Savior calls you to live a crucified life. He calls you to deny yourself. Deny yourself whatever is that keeps you from following him faithfully. And in the wake of that, God gives his people great gifts. The teacher wants you to receive them, gifts from God, to help you enjoy and endure in this unpredictable, broken life. I saw a panel of a cartoon this week. Uh, It was uh, Charlie Brown and Snoopy. I don't know if it was original to Charles Schultz. I I think it maybe wasn't. But 
Uh, Charlie Brown and Snoopy are sitting outside and they're looking at the stars. And Charlie Brown says, you only live once, Snoopy. YOLO, right? Charlie Brown, you only live once. And Snoopy responds, no, no, Charlie, you only die once. You live your life every day. I don't know if Charles Schultz wrote that, um, but I think the teacher would agree with it. You're going to die. You are going to die. You don't have nearly as much control over your life as you think you do. Accidents happen. Remember that. Remember that and live. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and and we recognize in your word the good news that this is, that you tell us to enjoy the blessings that you give us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting shadows. And Father, we are thankful to you. You tell us the truth about life in this world and you offer us such comfort in the midst of it. Lord, Help us to recognize the difference between living a life of self-indulgence and living a life that receives from you the good gifts that you allow. Companionship and comfort and contentment. Lord, um, some of us were foolish. We eat like dogs. We'll sit down today. We'll wolf down our food. We won't think about your kindness at all. And then we'll go and and care deeply about things that don't really matter. Awaken us. Awaken us to your goodness in the midst of this broken world. Give Give us, we pray, oh, we ask a mind and heart that receives from you all the blessings of our work this week and the food we'll eat this week in the companionship that we'll enjoy. Oh, help us. Lord, we are forgetful creatures. We are ungrateful creatures. Remind us of the many, many signs of your goodness. Do this for us. We pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. We're going to sing one more time this morning. I invite you all to stand as we sing, This is my Father's World, together.